The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Tremendous change can start with one small act, something as small as a broken window. That broken window can be one act of crime, one act of neglect, one act of hate. One broken window opens the door to many more, and the shattered glass at this house starts to shout the self-fulfilling story of a broken street. Before we know it, reality begins to bend around this new perception. This distorted environment starts producing refuse it never had before. Value drops, poverty rises, homelessness moves in. Broken homes and families, abandoned wives, mothers and children. Gangs, violence, murder, and a drug epidemic taking more lives than we can count. Word begins to spread from conversations to a headline to a full-blown narrative. And finally, we're branded with the ugly nicknames and a repulsive reputation. The condition of the street spread to the block, transmit to the community, and infect the entire city. And from one broken window, we're now left with a broken city. What is your response to the pain and the problems immediately around you? I mean, let's make it really personal. Every one of us, we see something going on around us and what is our actual response? I mean, you know, it's not like it's hard to see the issues going on around us, the problems and the pain in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our communities. And most of us are really good at talking about those issues. Here's how the scenario usually goes, something like this. I've seen it happen multiple times in you know, the locker room at the local gym or in a coffee shop or at a restaurant. It usually goes something like this. Somebody brings up uh, an issue of politics. I mean, should I just put it out there and let you guys talk amongst yourselves? Uh, or something with the economy. I mean, just bring up the issue of taxes or, or let, let's talk about the opioid issue uh, in our nation or in our city or uh, bring up some other social controversy. And, and here's what invariably happens. Uh, we start talking and then we start debating and, and the person that you're talking to, they make a really good point, but you don't wanna let on that they're right and so you come back with an even better point. And so you debate with each other and you argue and you disagree and within about a half an hour, you've actually figured it out. I mean, it's genius. Your tax plan is better than anyone else's tax plan. Your solution for the political problems that have uh, ravaged our nation for the last several decades, your answers are right. You've come up with a solution for the opioid epidemic. I mean, you've solved the drug crisis. You've come up with the best plan to uh, solve any of the policing issues. I mean, you've got it figured out. You've figured out global problems. There's just one problem with it. You walk out of the coffee shop, you walk out of the restaurant, you leave the gym, and neither of you do anything about it, right? Like you and I, we're the, we're the smartest people in the world. And I, man, I so appreciate Lifehouse. I appreciate the four our city churches that are partnering together to, to lead this campaign. And man, we've got it figured out, don't we? And, and the, the challenge is, even after we figure out all of the solutions to the problems around us, we just talk about it. And are you anything like me? that at some point you just get sick of talking about stuff. And I know that sounds weird coming from your pastor who part of what I do is talk about stuff. 
But the reality is I get sick of talking about stuff. At some point I'm like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to hear you talk about it. I want to see somebody actually do something. I think at some point results matter. I want some evidence-based outcomes. I want somebody to prove that the idea that they figured out in the locker room or the solution they came up with in a coffee shop actually works. I want somebody to put some walk to their talk. I want somebody to put their money where their mouth is and actually become part of the solution than just talking about and posting about problems around us. So what are we doing? Actually doing about the pain and the problems in the world we live in. This guy, James, he's the brother of Jesus. He leads the church in the city of Jerusalem during a time when the church experiences incredible trouble. What I mean is that they were killing Christians persecuting people who believe in Jesus. And as a result, there became what was called the dispersion, meaning people ran for their lives. The church scattered. Thousands of people left Jerusalem and began to live in the mountains and hills and villages surrounding Jerusalem. Some of them even migrated hundreds of miles away and they took their faith with them. Leaders of the church went with them. And some of the key primary leaders of the early church stayed in Jerusalem and continued to lead the church in the city of Jerusalem. The, the lead pastor's name was James. And he wrote a letter driven by an urgency that he saw that these Christians were running for their lives, but as a result, they were also running from the pain and the problems around them. Rather than getting involved in the crises in their world, they were running from it and they were living in hiding. And so he writes this letter and he asked that they spread this letter around to all of these scattered Christians, these scattered churches. And in his letter, he writes this, and it's kind of, um, I mean, to be very honest with you, it's just really a direct statement. He's challenging them. He's provoking them. He says this, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. The word he's referring to is the, the message of Jesus, the message of God's love, the message that God loves us and has rescued us from our wrongdoing. He said, don't, don't just deceive yourselves by listening. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away, immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, the implication here is actually a little funnier. What he's saying is, imagine you're getting ready to go out in the evening and when you look in the mirror, you've spent a good bit of time getting yourself ready, you got yourself dressed, you picked out your favorite outfit and maybe you're even going on a date and you're, you look in the mirror and you're making sure that you're, you know, for ladies, your makeup is just right, for us guys, I mean, we're just doing the best we can. I mean, honestly, we're, you know, not, not really a lot of options for us. We just, we're just doing the best we can. And, and after looking in the mirror, we see a little something, something in our nose. And we look a little closer, wait, what? No, that's not a hair. I can trim a hair. Oh, and then we turn and just walk away. That's actually what James is saying. He's going, look, when you see some blemish, there's something just not quite right about when you yourself, when you look in the mirror and then you turn and walk away from the problem, that doesn't make any sense. And, and so the point being, when you look at your life and you look at the lives of people around you and you see issues, you see problems, are you just turning and walking away? Are you just blatantly ignoring 
the problems that are staring you in the face. That's his point. Now, this is tough, right? Nobody's denying it. These are challenging words. And so he continues in his letter, and I'm gonna jump ahead to the second chapter, James chapter two, verse 14, where he says, he's, he's continuing with the same thought pattern here. And he goes, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? He goes, what does it matter if this idea of faith is like a seed that is planted in your heart, but that seed never grows up and produces anything, isn't that seed worthless? In a similar fashion, if there's really faith in our life, it, it must be more than simply just something we talk about. It should show us that it's real. And you could look at this. So this is the litmus test. You, maybe you're wrestling with your faith in God. Good, then study religions around you. Examine all of the different faiths. And the question is not, are they good ideas? Do they have good principles? No, the question is what fruit comes from the lives of people who practice that faith? Because the fruit is the evidence of the seed. That's kind of the point he's making here. Then he continues. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food meaning the most basic needs are not met. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And now he's getting really specific. He goes, imagine you walk up to somebody who's starving hungry and and he's kind of making a play on words here. And he goes like this, here's what you say to them. I pray that God fills your stomach, but you don't actually give him any food. Isn't your prayer empty? Isn't your prayer more empty than their stomach? If you see somebody naked and you don't give them clothes, but you pray, may God give you warmth, aren't you praying worthless and and naked words? That's That's kind of the play on words that James is using here. He said, you and I are exposed by the activity or the action of our faith. And then he continues. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. (laughs) So So he challenges that way of thinking. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And here it is. He goes, we, we don't need a revolution of what we believe. Maybe what I mean by that is we don't need a, a reformation or a revolution of creeds. We need a, a revolution and a reformation of our deeds so that our deeds match our creeds. He, he's challenging this early church that sees the problems around them and feels like they're in trouble that is running for their life and is hiding from the problems. And he's saying, look, you can't hide in catacombs and expect that your faith is actually really faith. You can't escape the world around you and think that by escaping the world around you, you will eventually escape to heaven. No, if Jesus is actually real, then he's real in you and you will make a real difference in the world you live in. Wow. This is a challenge, and so what does that mean for us? How, how do we read this and say, okay, he's writing to a church that's you know, 2,000 years ago, 
How does that make any difference in our life today? It's very simply this. For anyone that's wrestling with their faith, anyone that's wondering about who God is or how God works in the world around them, here is the challenge you and I have. That if we are going to believe in God by faith, then we must live this way. Our life and our love must be loud. Or, or let me say it this way, live and love loudly. I am, as soon as I say that, I have this fear that you're all gonna like get, jump up and start running around and screaming at the top of your lungs. Any of you that are watching online or at one of our campuses, please sit back down. Um, we, we don't need you running around like crazy people. Here's what I mean by that. Your life should be loud. Your silent service should be loud. Your love should echo through your neighborhood. Your love should echo through the streets. Your love should echo through our city, our nation, and through our generation. And wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, how exciting would that be? I mean, don't you just feel it right now? I mean, this is like a little pep rally and you're hearing it. I mean, you're behind your computer and you're like, yeah, I wanna do something. And you're, you're at one of our campuses and you're thinking, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get involved. I'm gonna change the world. And it's impossible. Some of you, you've been trying your whole life to make a difference. Some of you, you've been, you've been giving your very best. Maybe you've even been mailing checks to, to nonprofit organizations. You've been giving your best, and yet you feel like you're pouring your best into a bottomless pit. Why? Because our best efforts make no difference. Why? Because we're part of the problem. Am I allowed to say that? Well, it doesn't matter what I'm allowed to say. It's true. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's jump back to the letter of James where he writes this. He's making this challenge. And he says this, Therefore, get rid of moral filth and evil that is prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Okay, so what he says is this. He goes, here's the real problem. The problem is this thing called sin. I know, that's tough. He goes, here's the deal. Every one of us started life with a self-sabotaging drive. Every one of us are instinctively and spiritually driven to do the wrong thing. We don't want to do the wrong thing. We don't mean to do the wrong thing. We don't want to be selfish, but there is this spiritual corruption alive in us that drives us to pursue selfish desires. As a result, we become part of the problem. That's right, we're causing the pain and problems in the world around us. And even if you're not personally actively involved in one of the problems that you think is going on in the world around us, trust me when I say you're just part of another problem. Maybe no one's calling you out on it, but the truth is every one of us, and here is what sin does, yes, it wrecks our lives. Yup, it ruins our neighborhoods and ruins our homes and it ruins our communities and it ruins the city and it destroys a nation. But worse, sin, because it's a spiritual corruption, wrecks our hearts. It separates us from relationship with God. And when you and I live our lives spiritually driven away from God, we become spiritually bankrupt or spiritually dead. And so we live our whole lives driven by sin on a life trajectory toward eternal ruin. Or worse, maybe another way of saying it's eternal judgment. 
so that we spend the rest of forever living in judgment for the life we lived on earth driven by this selfish uh, disease called sin. And so James goes like this. He goes, look, the first thing we've got to do is deal with this moral filth and this evil desire that drives us called sin by accepting the word of truth planted in our hearts. What does he mean? He goes, look, the whole thing, God saw the mess. God saw the pain and the problems around us and he intervened by becoming one of us. Jesus' mission was not to be a good man. He didn't come to earth to teach good things. His primary goal was not to talk. Jesus is referred to as the word of God, but his goal was not to talk about things. His goal was to actively live it out. So Jesus comes to earth, he teaches us how to live a right life, and then he lives it, and then he dies for it. And Jesus' death, what he does is he takes the eternal death sentence every one of us face, and he puts it on himself. So that when Jesus died, he didn't just die physically. His death was his way of absorbing our sin judgment so that he was crushed spiritually. He paid our penalty so that when you and I believe in Jesus by faith, we're forgiven of our sins. Shame and guilt removed. That self-sabotaging drive that lives in us is conquered because when we believe in Jesus by faith, God's spirit, which is eternal and invisible, comes and lives inside of our spirit, which is also eternal and invisible. And when God's spirit lives in our spirit, he overcomes this drive of sin, gives us a new life. So he changes us so that we can change the world around us. Did you catch that? So here's the deal. So James is making this point that we receive the word of truth. It's like a seed that is planted in our life, but you don't really know it's there until it starts to grow. My, one of my daughters, she, she is really excited about growing some fruit trees. And so she's collected uh, cherry pits and peach, tr- uh, peach pits and all kinds of other pits. And then she, we got her a little, uh, little planter box for her and she had all the pits in there. The problem is after like a couple months, there's no shoots coming up. So are they alive or are they dead? It doesn't matter what you put in the ground. If there's no results, there's no life. And the point is Jesus is saying, I come to give you life. I, I went, when you believe in me, James, James is saying, when you believe in Jesus, something begins to change. You're changed and you begin to change the world around you. You believe in Jesus by faith and then the, the faith is planted like a seed and it begins to grow and produce fruit in your life, and there it is. There's the challenge, there's the, the, um, what we're confronted with, and then he makes it really practical. I, 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 of all the authors you can read about, I appreciate James because he's a pragmatist. He goes, I don't really care what you believe, I don't care what you're talking about, if you're not doing anything about it, you, you don't really believe anything. Meaning your, your faith is empty and worthless if you're not living it out. And then he makes it really practical and he, and he says this, uh, ver, James chapter one, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
So he makes this kind of bold statement. If you, want it, if you want it really practical, if you want to write something down that you can take note of and you can remember throughout the week and maybe even begin to practice, it's this. We love loudly when our faith becomes alive. When our faith is alive, it will produce a loud kind of love. But the key here is that our faith is alive. You're, you, when you believe in Jesus by faith, it is, you are not following just another religion. This isn't just another good idea. This isn't just another church. It's not like all the other religions in the world. This is the one unique one that is actually alive. Where when you believe in Jesus by faith, something changes. What was dead in you becomes alive. What, what it means is that the word of God planted in your life, meaning when you receive the good news of the message that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose again for you, that truth, when it's planted in your spirit, gives you life. And that life begins to show itself through your lifestyle. You begin to change. You are not what you once were. And so the author James is making this challenge to us. And he, he makes this point and he says, as with the body, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He goes, the way you know whether the pit that you plant in the ground, the way you know that that cherry pit is actually a living seed is when a cherry tree begins to grow from it. It's alive. And when the seed of faith is planted in you, and it begins to grow, it begins to produce fruit, you go, yes, that's for real. Now, let me be careful here, I have to give you a warning. This does not mean that you earn your way to heaven. It doesn't mean that you do good things in order to get into heaven. You don't, that would be like going like this. That would be like planting a cherry pit in the ground and then going, I wanna know that it's alive. And so you start shoving cherries in the ground or you start putting cherries in a pile around it. No, 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 you can't put cherries on a cherry pit to make it come alive. Either the cherry pit sprouts and produces a cherry tree that eventually produces cherries or it doesn't. The point is this, you can't make it come alive, but when it comes alive inside of you, it will begin to produce life. The, when, when James is using the word, he's talking about believing, the word in the Greek is actually made up of two words. It, the word faith, it means to trust and obey. So one, the trusting part would be that God's word is planted and you receive this word. It's a seed that's received and you trust God and you say, Jesus, I believe in you. But then there's the obedience part and that's where our faith becomes alive. It becomes uh, something more than just a seed planted. It begins to sprout into life. And so trust me, others around you, they don't really care about your words. They care about your life and your words matter when they match your life. And then James continues in his challenge to us. He says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. And what is his point? It's this, it's not just that our faith is alive, it's that we love loudly when our faith is active. 
What I, what I mean is, it's not just that the seed comes out of the ground and demonstrates life, therefore your faith is alive. It's that your faith is also active. There's some activity about believing in Jesus that is different than the way you live without believing in Jesus or the way everyone else around us lives. I don't, I don't need to teach this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna illustrate it through church history. So let, let me give you some stories, some examples of what it looks like to love loudly with an active faith. In the second and third century, after the church began, so now we're talking, you know, around 223 AD, uh, that, was the, that would be like the third century, in 185 AD, there, what, what a prominent moment happened in those two centuries, and that was the spread of a plague around the Roman Empire. Cities like Alexandria, that two-thirds of the population uh, were decimated. They would say that in the outlying villages around major cities, entire villages were wiped out by the plague. And so what would happen is that the first sign or the first onset of a symptom of the plague, families would throw their members out. I mean, imagine the scene of a husband push, you know, sending the wife out of the home. And she goes because she knows if she stays, it could cost her the lives of her children. And so you've got people in the streets dying. And hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of the plagues, but what happened? A living, active faith propelled Christians to get involved. And so this is, I mean, you can research these stories yourself. And what began to happen is all across the Roman Empire, Christians driven by this loud love began to invite the dying into their homes. They, they gave them their beds, their food. They would wash them and nurse them. And what they discovered is that through the most basic rudimentary nursing, the mortality rate plummeted, people began to live. They began to survive the plague. Some um, were healed or, or recovered, but then the Christians who were caring for them got the plague and they died in their place. Now imagine, imagine a city that's pushing their loved ones into the streets to die only to watch Christians walk the streets and invite them into their home. Well, you can imagine what began to happen. Christianity began to spread. Well, who are these people that would care for the sick, that would care for my dying child or my dying spouse or my dying relative? Who are these people? And so they began to wonder. And what they heard was, we are willing to give our lives because Jesus was willing to give his life for us, and our hope is not in this life, but in eternity. Christianity began to spread rapidly to the point that when Constantine took over in three, about 312 AD, which came to full leadership in 333, um, over half of the Roman Empire came under the direct social and uh, theological influence of Christianity so that they began to ban practices like infanticide, meaning the murdering of small children the murdering of children. They began to ban the gladiatorial games, saying that this isn't right. They began to respond to the degradation of women. In fact, um, there was a common practice where parents could kill their children. Maybe they couldn't provide for the children, so they just killed them. Or they couldn't just abandon them, just leave them on the streets. And, and so what happened was Christians seeing this began to respond. I made some notes and just a couple of the guys that you can go back and research yourself 
Um, the, the, these two guys, one of them named Callistus, who he basically began the, the orphan care system. He would, he would find children, he would take them in, provide refuge and food, and then he would connect them to a Christian home. Well, we're talking in the 300s. Uh, another guy uh, named uh, Benjamin of Dijon, he offered uh, nourishment, meaning he was providing food and shelter to these children. And he actually is known as kind of the father of the orphan care system. Now imagine what's going on in the world around us when Christians are responding to the plague, when Christians are responding to abandoned children that are being kidnapped and used in sex trafficking, even in the 300s. And, and as Christianity spread, they began to start monasteries all around the known world, monasteries that became the center for a refugee crisis, uh, monasteries that were the center of scientific research and discovery, uh, monasteries that were the center of the growing educational system. In fact, the entire higher educational system was born out of the spread of these monasteries, meaning the, the, what we now know as the college and university system, because you had individuals like um, Berkeley and Descartes and Locke and Reed that were all connected to this growing, spreading educational system that was growing out of a Christian faith that said we need to educate people because we value people. You, you want to know, as they were studying the science, Guys like Newton and Pasteur, Kepler, Pascal, Fleming and Edwards, all Christians, all saying we need to study the world around us because the world around us is worth studying because God designed it. Did you know this? 100 of the first 110 universities in America were founded for the express purpose of sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Universities like Harvard and Princeton and Yale were started as seminaries to teach individuals how to share their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that throughout history, billions and billions of dollars have been given by Christians to respond to the crisis and the pain and the problems around them. Christians have given lifetimes of service, hundreds, thousands of lifetimes in service. Christians have funded missionaries that have gone, gone to nearly every known nation in the world. And what do they do when they get there? They start hospitals. And schools, they provide sustainable agriculture. They help people find and, and, and treat water so they can have clean water. They receive donations so they can provide food and clothing. Nearly every humanitarian effort in the world that you hear about was initiated by a Christian. So the next time somebody says to you, religion is the problem in the world around you, you don't have to argue with them because remember, Arguing is not going to do much. Just show them through your loud love that the love of Jesus inside of you is changing the world. Let me be clear. We not only pray for God to show up, we show up. We not only ask God to respond to the problems and the pain in the world around us, we respond. See, you are the response of God to the crisis in the world around us. I know for Laura and I, I was preparing this message and just thinking, man, I, I don't, I don't want to just get up and talk about it. I want you to know that when, I, when I, we, we showed a video about foster care system, and, and it's one of those issues that we just wanted to deal with as a city because it's a growing crisis. In fact, the opioid crisis is creating an increase in the foster care crisis, meaning we have more and more children being displaced from their homes and needing a new home because of the growing drug crisis in our world. 
And, and so I didn't want to just come and tell you about it. No, a couple years ago, Laura and I, we signed up and we volunteered to open our home to be a foster care family. And we've had kids in and out of our home because I don't want to just tell you what to do. And I don't want to just tell you to do something. We said, we want to live it too. We want to be part of the response of God. And that's what I mean when I say our love should be loud because our faith is not just alive, but our faith is active. And so what about you? Don't just tell me what you believe. In fact, James says, you believe, good for you. Even the demons in hell believe in God. I didn't say that. James said that, all right? But the point is this. Saying I believe something doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove that the seed of faith is planted in my heart. You know what shows that faith is planted in my heart? When the sprout begins to grow out of me. When the fruit begins to grow on my life. When my love becomes so loud because my faith is active and alive. And so where are you at right now? Maybe for you, you're, you're tired of talking about it. And maybe, maybe in your heart of hearts, you're saying, I, I need that faith that is real and genuine. I don't wanna just go to church. I don't wanna just say, I believe in God. I don't wanna just talk about Jesus. I wanna know that the spirit of the living God is alive in me. And maybe that's where you're at. And your first response right now, and all across our campuses, your first response is to say yes to Jesus. Jesus, I believe in you. Not only would you come and live in me, but would you give me a living faith and an active faith? But maybe you believe in Jesus. My question to you is, does your belief match your activity? Do your words match the way you're living? And has it created a lifestyle? If not, then this is your moment where you pray and we believe that God's spirit is with you right now. And so as you pray, my hope is that God's spirit would speak to your spirit. And so here, what are you gonna do about this? For some of you, your first step is to say yes to Jesus and allow God's word to be planted in your spirit. For others of you, you've said yes to Jesus, but it's time for that yes to begin to grow and begin to produce fruit in your life. And so for you, that prayer moment is God, what is my next step? Maybe it's giving, maybe it's serving, maybe it's allowed love by opening your home to others. But I assure you, God's spirit will speak to you right now. If you would just pause and take a moment and pray. Would you do that right now? Would you just open your heart and begin to pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.